Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. We are a weekly Columbus-centric podcast focusing on the civics, lifestyle, entertainment, and people of our city. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. This week, I sat down with B.B. Miller, acclaimed choreographer, dancer, and director of the B.B. Miller Dance Company, to talk about how she arrived at dance as an art form, her newest work, In a Rhythm, the keys to appreciating modern dance, and how the artistic process shapes the artistic end product. You can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Also, The Confluence Cast is on Patreon. Find out how to support this podcast on our website, theconfluencecast.com, or at patreon.com slash confluence. The Confluence Cast is sponsored by Art Makes Columbus, Columbus Makes Art, featuring stories about our city's incredible artists, stories full of inspiration, challenge, passion, and success. For videos, articles, an up-to-the-minute calendar of events, and an artist directory, visit columbusmakesart.com, the resource for all things arts and culture in the capital city. Enjoy the interview. Sitting down here with choreographer B.B. Miller on the occasion of her upcoming premiere of the work, the series of works, the work. Well, you know, it's kind of put together as an idea of piecemeal pieces. Okay. Sort of a suite of dances, but it's really one. It's one evening. It's one evening. Of dance. The evening is called In a Rhythm. Yes. And most people probably won't think that, oh, it's a different dance than the other one. So maybe that's, I think, more our way of thinking of it rather than an audience's way of Well, is the audience going to sit through just the same dance over and over again? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's an idea, but don't think so. Well, you can test the, I mean, art is meant to challenge people, right? Oh, yeah. So you can challenge their patience. Yeah, one of my first performances, not of my own work, but we did the same piece twice, only we changed facings, and it extended the 20 minutes of material into almost an evening of work. There you go. Yeah. Well, it's all about perception at that point, right? Mm Mm-hmm. B.B., you grew up in Brooklyn, came to The Ohio State University, got your M.A. back in 1975, went back to New York, formed the B.B. Miller Dance Company, and then chose to come back to Ohio. I'm sure there were other things in between. Other things in my life as well, but but yeah. walk me through that sort of formative time. Because you were a dancer growing up as well, but walk me through sort of the professional career. So let's go back to Brooklyn. Okay. Growing up in Red Hook, Red Hook Projects, my mother was a nurse and then an elementary school teacher. My father was, my parents were separated and divorced early age, but my father was away being a steward on an ocean liner. So came back with really interesting gifts. And my mother did an extraordinary job or effort of providing us with as many opportunities, cultural, mostly educational, that she could. She was part of the Great Migration before it was called the Great Migration of people moving up from the South. She was in her 20s, came up to be a domestic, impressed her employees, employers so much that they paid for her nursing school. So 
My mother was extraordinary. Yeah. And one of the things she did was start us up with dance classes. I was three. It was at a place called Henry Street Settlement House in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Okay. And my teacher, my teachers were members of the Alwyn Nikolai Dance Company, which if you were a modernist following dance at that time, you would know who he was. Okay. I had a really deep beginning in abstract modern dance. I improvised clouds and leaves and lines. And um, doing that in and out of Red Hook, Brooklyn was unusual, let's just say. Did that until I was 12 or so and tried to conform to everybody else. And there is no conforming to everybody else. And went to college and onward kind of came back and found dance after my undergrad degree in art. Okay. Yeah. So that leads me to how I got here in mm-hmm. the 70s as for, for my master's. I applied to dance and library school, okay. library science. I thought I'd make a good librarian. And dance ended up giving me money, and I came here. And, the, <laughs> and did you apply to the – where were you applying to library science program? You know, I can't remember where they were. But, okay. Um, uh, I'm just curious. Yeah, but I, I worked in um, – the library at Earlham College where I went to school. Mm-hmm. And then I worked at Columbia University in the book order department in the library. And I just, I'm, I'm a kind of a quiet book reader okay. type. And I thought like, shoot, that sounds great. I was also dancing. Right. And it didn't seem that I was starting necessarily on a career, but... You just said to yourself, it's time for me to get a graduate degree or... Not even that clear. My mother had just passed away. I was in my early 20s. Okay. So Vera Blaine, a professor here in the department, got in touch with me. This was two years after I'd applied. And okay. she said, you know, we have a fellowship for you if you'd like to take it. And I went, oh, well, okay. It's like taking free dance classes. And I thought I would. And it changed. Uh, and it changed. Yeah. yeah. It changed things. I felt that what I got was a context for the work that I was doing. I knew who did it before me. I knew what else was around. I found dance in ways that I had not even imagined. Not that it was like really way out, but yeah, I put double dutch jump, rope jumping in one of my my pieces. It was okay. just, you know, like, why not? Right. So then I went back to New York, danced some more. But you were a dancer at that point. It had then become your career. Yeah. And it's okay. funny about careers. You know, for lots of us, it's you've been doing something for the past three, four years. And then you go like, huh, I guess this is my career. I guess this is what I do now. I guess this is what I do. Right. And I didn't, I mean, I was waiting tables and I had, you know, office jobs. I had all of that as well. So it was the New York life. Right. It was lovely. And I was making. And the first... <laughs> the first group piece I've made was with the other waiters in my restaurant. So okay, did they happen to be trained? Dancers and they were dancers. Well? Okay. Yeah, they were dancers. So what's also kind of weird is like you make one piece and you don't think you're going to make a second piece. It's all about like let me can I make a piece? Can I make a dance piece? Okay, and we did. It was okay. And people saw it. And people saw and it. They and they gave mostly positive feedback. Mostly positive. Yeah, and then. The idea that, oh, I could do this again. And they asked, and they, okay, I'll do another piece. Literally, that really is what happened. Okay. So 
I slipped into this career, let's say. Okay. I was working with a choreographer doing her work, and her name is Nina Wiener, and I was starting on my own. So it just seemed like, huh, is that all there is? <laughs> or is that what it is? That you just become what you're doing. And, and I, yeah, I, that, was, that was great. And so how did you end up back in Ohio? Successful professional career. You decided to come back to Columbus in 2000, correct? To teach yeah, again? yeah. And if not so much like, yes, successful, we, B.B. Miller Company mm-hmm. formed in 1985. We went on to tour nationally, internationally, in Europe. We performed in Africa, South Africa, and what you would want as a career. And, and then, for a company, right? And for, yeah, for right. a company. We were a freelance, small, alternative dance company of uh, six to eight dancers. It was great. It was, oh gosh. So when was the Maplethorpe thing? Like 94. Okay. Early 90s. There, the NEA 4, if you recall, where there was an issue of censorship. There was a, an artist... Robert Maplethorpe, who was getting NEA funding of a photographer, mm-hmm. and people didn't quite like what he was taking pictures of. And there was a, a, an African artist whose name just escapes me, who did a work with elephant dung on a crucifix or, or something like that. And so the iconography really made Mayor Giuliani crazy. So right. that was all in that 90s time of artistic censorship that was starting to happen. And it didn't, it's not like suddenly we had no work, but right. you know, two years down the line, the commissions, the performances just didn't come in quite as much as they had for alternative. Because the National Endowment for the Arts was sort of the thing the fund that was keeping a lot of these things. National Endowment, local New York State State Arts Council. Oh, so um, it flowed downhill. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Okay. Really. And, you know, when you think of of some small alternative theater, like at the Wexner Center of the Arts, receiving money from the NEA and receiving less money from the NEA, depending on who, perhaps depending on who who they were presenting. So I don't know if it was that explicit. Okay. I'm sure it wasn't, but we all felt the crunch. I still was working. I was still traveling and making dances, doing commissions, but I had less work with my company. And I got to say, dancing and making dances with people in the room, that's really what it's about. Right. The idea of myself just making solos or going and teaching somebody else a dance was less... Appealing to you. Yeah, less interesting. Okay. So, So there's something about... I think truly about just the who's in the room, what are the jokes, where are those deep moments of thought as well as making that pulls you forward. And it's kind of why you do what you do. That's why I do what I do. do. And so there was less work. Ohio State Department of Dance had been making the offer for a while. And I finally said... They kept reaching out. They kept, you know, and they... Karen Bell became chair, uh-huh. and the offers changed enough to say, like, what if I could be teaching for two quarters of the year, mm-hmm. and maybe I could take the third quarter and continue my professional life in the city or elsewhere? Right. And it made it like, okay, I could do this. 
Had so you I maintained came. a connection with the university over yeah. that time? And As a w- matter of fact, yeah. I taught here in the mid-80s. We performed at the Wexner Center in the early 90s mm-hmm. and mid-90s. So so I'd been back to Columbus often. Okay. Yeah. So, and the department was really important to me, and it still is. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's that. Yeah. Karen Bell. That's the Karen answer. Karen Bell. <laughs> How'd Karen you come Bell. back Thank here? you, Karen. Karen Bell. Yeah. Good. In a Rhythm comes to the Wexner Center November 30th through December 3rd. The promotional materials for the show talk about, quote, the project explores the syntax of movement and how we absorb its meaning. Can you talk about that for perhaps the less sophisticated or less knowledgeable dance patrons, what people should watch for in the performance in order to appreciate it? Basically, and this can be referenced to In a Rhythm or to just dance in general, what should people be open to? Sure, sure. I think in watching dance, one of the most important things to keep in mind is that as simple as it sounds, this is all happening through time. Mm -hmm. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end, and that there are choices that are being made uh, by the artists involved about how they might want to take you toward the end from the beginning that's set up. So I think it's not meant to be mysterious, but if we can imagine, and I think I speak for most choreographers, that there's there's a kind of, Oh, what's going to bring them forward in their chairs? Where do you get to like lean back and just maybe absorb a bit and kind of mm-hmm. get lost? And then what's going to bring you back again? Okay. So that whole leaning back and forward is choreographic. Okay. And inside of all of that, then there's a rise and fall of physicality and attention and everybody goes or, you know, somebody leaves the stage and there's one person left. It's like, how do they get there? How did that happen? Right. And I like to think of that as syntax in a way. It's syntactical. Right. Like if you're reading a really good essay and the writer takes you someplace and then like leaves you and you jump off the cliff with them. Right. How do they do that? And we get to kind of go back and reread that. But I think in dance, somebody just did that with you. And then there's an understanding of like, oh, what shall we do with that moment now? So... I think sometimes when people are unfamiliar with dance, they're like, oh, gosh, there's a story. Something's happening that I don't understand. Well, I was about to ask you if there's if you would apply the word narrative to that, because there's a beginning, middle and end, which yeah. is, a, you know, a linear thing, which you can play with. Right, 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 right. right. Yeah, you, you, can, know, you can think of it as story. I prefer story-ness. Okay. That it's less about there's a literal story, but right. there's that kind of a sense like, oh, these people know each other. So something happened before. It's story-ish. 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 <laughs> story-e. Right. <laughs> and so that then maybe we can, you can, we can relax about like following exactly what's going on. Okay. And I think also... We as audience goers in in our culture, we are so cinematic. We will go and be confused by any movie and go again. Right. (laughs) You know, so I would love for people to give dance that second chance if it didn't work out the first time. But let's just assume that it is working and that there is something that is elusive that maybe ties into the elusive quality of your ordinary day. 
I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't understand everything that happens to me all day long. Right. Well, but you give yourself over to it a little bit. You do. Right. You do. And then you have another day and you absorb it and you move on. So, so there is that sense of like, oh, maybe somebody just posed a question for me that I don't know the answer to. And can I live with that? Rather than like, there's a question and I'm supposed to have the answer. And sometimes we don't have the answer, but it's right. the question or the sup- supposition like, oh, maybe, oh, oh, I felt that, I felt it, I felt it. I but don't know. why did? Yeah. Right. The why becomes less important than actually feeling the thing. Okay. I guess just to translate you a little bit, what yeah. you're saying is give yourself over to the work, take it in, be observant, and take what you can from it. Rather than questioning what were they doing or what, what is that supposed to mean to me? Right. It's really, how does that make me feel? How does that challenge me? Because in the end, that's the whole purpose, right? And in the end, that's the whole purpose. Good. And in the end, sometimes the choreographer can't answer that question either. Okay. Or the dancers involved, but it's like there's something in there that uh, I want to follow and I don't know where it's going to lead me. So. Can you talk about. Dance has always been interesting and challenging to me in that it's not, it can't necessarily, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, be prescriptive in future creation in that there isn't, it's not music on a sheet. No. I, I, worked, I worked here at the Wexner Center when William Forsyth was doing some really interesting work that I felt like I got dance a little bit better when mm. he sort of created this. I'm sure you saw the work that was in the galleries here at the Wexner Center, where he sort of created a musical score of this is what the dancer does now. Oh. And this is how they interact with each other. Yeah. They did some work with the, uh, I don't know what the motion capture. Oh, ACAD. And yeah, and, yeah with, sure. At, with ACAD. As it relates to the creation of a work, mm-hmm. how does dance get documented? Because obviously, I mean, there are people still performing like Merce Cunningham yeah. work. Yeah. How does that happen? <laughs> Thank goodness for video, for one. Okay. Which is a sort of a mixed blessing. It is such an oral tradition. Okay. And a physical tradition that generally you are shown through a body, one to another, what an action is. Okay. And your body remembers that. And then that gets, I mean, as simple as it sounds, that's what then, you know, gets reproduced. Right. So I think we are clearly living in a virtual age. Now we all are familiar with video. We all have them on our cameras. And we forget sometimes that that is just one record of one performance, perhaps. Right. But we do get to see and re-see, like, what was that series of interactions in our body? We are smart. We are physically smart. Okay. We understand how movement works and how the body works. So I think there, you know, how a work is, is repeatable is something that lots of choreographers aim for. Okay. People like Bill Forsyth and even myself, because we work now, I'm, I work very much with scored improvisation as well as with set choreography, and okay. as he does too. It becomes less important than having it look exactly like it looked the night before, but can you narrow down, nail down the intention behind a movement okay, or a series of movements and that that's what gets repeated. And is that written out or is that 
Mm. Or, the, you know, do you tape off the stage as you would in theater to hit your mark? There's some, there's some of that. Okay. But there's also, there's a lot of, if I leap over in this direction and there's a person coming in at that time, generally I'm going to be in the right place and we're going right. to connect. So there's the repetition, the repetition, which is, I think, in French or something about like what rehearsal is. It's like, okay. do it again and again. So for me, I feel less interested, even than I was like 20 years ago, about like, what exactly is that step? But I am now more attuned to what exactly made you move in that direction in the first place? And okay. can I just kind of, can we hold on to that intention behind movement rather than, and let that lead the specifics? Got it. Yeah. That may be kind of way over. No, no, no. People, it's, but it's, I think that it, I think it inspires people to go back to your earlier point of sort of letting go. Yeah. And as an audience member, realizing that it's not necessarily as prescriptive as we perceive it to be because mm -hmm. it's it's because it is beautiful and it is there is this thing happening ooh, 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 i just had a thought please about the prescriptive and because i you know I'm, I'm a little lost with thinking of it in quite in that way but sometimes i think when people are looking at complex movement a lot of what comes up is like, how do they know what they're doing? How do they, where are they going to go? And so you lose, you're holding on to what, hoping that they're holding on to it too. Exactly. But what if we could just let it go and watch and just sort of like, oh, he's really cueing off of this other person or their relationship came out of the blue as relationships often do and seemed to like change everything. Well, and allow it to be story-ish and like, Yes, appreciate the beauty. Yes, appreciate, you know, to some aspect, the physicality and the difficulty and the training that must be behind this. Yeah. But that's not what it's about. Yeah. It's a performance art. Yeah. And so take in the performance. And yes. I think I now know why I've always had such difficulty with dance. So yeah. because I, I embrace the William Forsyth work, which I'll link in the show notes so much because I was like, Oh, oh, finally. Finally, because my yeah. background's in theater. Uh -huh. And so I understand a script and, you know, staging and all that. And so if I see a piece of theater, I can give myself away and say, oh, they got this. Yeah. And sure. it's not, oh, does that guy know he's not supposed to run into that other person? Yeah. Or maybe they yeah. are supposed to run into yeah, each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. So. And, you know, we have, we have hundreds and hundreds of years of theater mm -hmm. in our bones. And yeah. so we understand like how that works. Dance, not so much. Well, so, well, well. Actually, dance is older. Older, older it was older. theater. I yeah, mean, right. And it was it was ritual. It was like how we prayed. It's how we just kind of like whoa. It's move. how we greeted. It's how, how we, we celebrated. Exactly. Right. It's exactly. everything. So, but skip forward like a few thousand years <laughs> right. to contemporary dance, and right. now it's like, what are they doing? And should I be paying? Do they know? And I don't need me. And maybe even just, oh, listen to the tone of my questions. They come really, really rapidly and fast. Maybe that's, oh, 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 oh. Somebody just made that happen for me. Right. I have a, just a quick little story. Please. There's a Twyla Tharp piece from 1990-something called Fate Accompli. Okay. I saw it in New York. I got to the theater just a little bit before it started, so I'm sitting in my seat. I'm taking off my coat. And 45 minutes later, my coat is in the same position. 
Really, truly. And it was like... And this is for somebody who knows, who works within. Yeah. Right. But I just went, what is she doing? And it's not that I'm like, oh, a good step, bets, But it's like, wow, whoa, whoa. They came from behind. They came from with brooms and they swept the floor. And then this other... You know, it was like one thing after another. I mean, that was Twilight Tharp in 1994 with that piece. But, right. But that sense of like movement, there was no story. It was just... And music, it was like a, a way through time that was totally captivating. So I love I would, it. I love that. And I don't know if this piece is that. I would love that to be, but I, maybe. But I also love the fact that like, oh, I mean, like, oh, I got a little tired with them too. What's so empty? I don't know. Oh, mm, no. And then you're back. And then you're back. So Right. Talk about the development of Inner Rhythm. You were working with also a choreographer, Susan Redhorst. Okay, there's two things. One, there is the project, The Making Room. Okay. Which is why my project with Sue. In that, B.B. Miller Company kind of designed this. I asked Susan to work with, well, not with me, but kind of journey with me okay. over the course of a year where we're both working on our separate dances. Okay. We convene three times live and other times virtually just to kind of check in, like, how are you doing? What you're doing? What's your process? Okay. And then at the end, there's some kind of conflagration of, da-da, uh-huh. this is what we did. My piece that I made during that time during that time is in a rhythm. Yeah, okay. yeah. So we can talk and so about is the making room a project in and of itself yes. that sort of informs process or is meant to inform. Yeah, the making room is the process of. Is it a process? I don't want to lend too much credence to it, but did you create a different process that's not commonly used for choreographers to develop work and work with each other in concert? I think what was uncommon, what is uncommon, is that we had our March 2016, we were in the same room with, like, two dancers. And, okay. And we said, let's make, go ahead. I worked for two hours with these two dancers, and then she worked with two hours. Like, oh, look at that. How did you do that? Why did you do that this way? Right. You know, the idea of, like, looking at our processes okay. through time. Okay. Move away from that. I continue with these dancers and like, oh, well, <laughs> let's bring in some more others down the way. And lo and behold, I'm making a dance. Okay. And then I check in with Sue. What are you doing? How did you? So on and so forth. The making room as a project is culminating with a portal, a website portal. Okay. That kind of tracks that chronology for both of us. We will be in kind of having a combined performance at New York Live Arts okay. in February 2018, working in some way with both of our pieces. And then there's going to be an ebook that is released June 2018 as okay. sort of a culminating thing of that project. So inside of that... And so who's making that? So there's the Wexner Center Residency Award. That helps pay for the development of in a rhythm. In a rhythm, yes. How did the you know the web portal, the ebook? How did that come about? National Endowment for the Arts. They're Ready? back. Yeah, they're back. Thank <laughs> we're God. For, we're, we're full circle now. Yeah, yeah. So and yeah, we our project. You know, thanks to the Greater Columbus Arts Council and the Ohio Arts Council, as well as National Endowment mm-hmm. and and other funders, we 
that was that's that project. Got it. And inside of that, or alongside of that project, mm-hmm. is actually a piece that we made, which has its own funding and so on and so forth. So now I understand. Yeah, it's a it's the umbrella being un, yeah right. Yeah. But you've got it's a rainforest. You've got a couple different layers there. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Good metaphor. Can you talk about the authors that inspired In a sure. Rhythm and talk about that? Okay, let me just go back to In a Rhythm first. I mean, I mean, the making room for a second. Yeah. So Sue and I were off thinking about our own work, and I'm reading David Foster Wallace. I kind of got turned on to him through. Did you see the film The End of the Tour? I did not. Well, it was by the Rolling Stone writer David somebody else who went to interview him for the Rolling Stone and it was never published. I saw the trailer. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's really good. Is Jason it good? Jason Siegel. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's really good. Okay. Anyway, that kind of got me back to Wallace. I, I had kind of like, oh, infinite chess. Wait, I can't do right. it. <laughs> but... What I got fascinated with is, I don't know, I'm a foodie, I'm a, I'm a bookie, <laughs> about, about literature and, and language, that there is a way on a written page that an author takes you to some place. Mm-hmm. Ian McEwen, there was another writer, a book called Saturday, that we used actually as a, as a reference for a work, where how you're reading along and it's totally mundane and then suddenly you're just you're at the edge of your chair. You don't know exactly how he did that. Right. And it's the, it's the syntax. Yep. It's the syntax in the, in the sentence. It's like kind of the structure of the language on the page. It's the juxtaposition of one thing after another in time. And I went, Hey, we do that in dance. This is what we do. So, so I kind of, both the words used and the rhythm of those words and sort of the because you're speaking to yourself as you're reading yeah. a little bit, right? Yeah. And so there's a cadence that's created as well. Exactly, which exactly. Is directly translatable to dance. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, there's energy, there's there's energy, there's energy, there's passion, there's not right. so much passion. And in time. And and this isn't my only idea or my own idea, but it's okay. like it's it to me just that that the revelation of how we receive information. Mm-hmm. And what comes before it, what comes after it, and as a choreographer, my my job, my fun is to shift the order, to interrupt what's expected, okay. to then kind of figure out what else can happen, even interrupting the dancers so that they don't do what they're expecting. So that whole sense of what we think the bodies mean to each other, right, and what how that is crafted is what I work with. That's the meaningfulness that I'm aiming for. It's not different than the meaning. I don't have, I don't have a manifesto that I'm trying to get across. I just okay. let other people do that. That's not your art. That's not my art. Right. But I, I do feel that, that we understand when we've hit something that's meaningful. We just kind of, we get a gravitas or a joy in that and, and arriving at that in whatever method is what really I'm passionate about. And with a writer, you can reread it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the crafter in me goes like, how did he, did he, why did he do that sentence first? And like, huh, what is it about that pacing of voice in the first person plural? I mean, or what is that when you're talking about yourself and you're saying you third person, thank you. Anyway, that, that he uses in his story forever overhead. Okay. 
I think it's called, and very different than he uses in Incantations of Burned Children, which was two different stories, and I even have the dancers read, that are vastly different in content and feeling, but they are remarkable. So would you say that the dances are interpretations of those works, but it interpreted in like not a, certainly not in a narrative format, but in like the cadence we were talking about, yeah. because that that's the kind of work you were seeking out, right? Yeah. And I, I think for both stories, what hits me is like his how the mundane sits alongside the terrific or the terror. Okay. How the dailiness of a series of actions just just is enveloped in and around something that is utterly, um, my hands are waving in the air to describe this, but it's just like, you know, it just takes your breath away. So I got interested in that juxtaposition, not so much the literalness of the story itself, Mm -hmm. but just what are these dynamics and how do they sit one against the other? And can I do that? Right. How would I do that? How do I do that? And it's the question of how, not so much the answer. Like, see, I did it. I don't know if I did it, but <laughs> I, but I'm. I, that's what I'm aiming for. Right. So, in all the the press that one might read about this piece, it's going to be at the Wexner, and if they mention David Foster Waller's stories or Toni Morrison, and expect to hear David Foster Waller's stories or Toni Morrison. It's not going to happen. And They're going to be a little disappointed. They are, but, right? But we have done our homework and. There's something about their quality that has been fascinating to me, and I hope I've made the dancers fascinated by that as well. So, so the two stories that inspire the work, both David Foster Wallace. Yes. So Forever Overhead, and then Incantations of Burn. Incarnations of... Excuse me, Incarnations of Burned Children. Yes. That's very different from Incantations, yes. which you kept saying. Yeah. But also... Mm-hmm. The Zadie Smith, okay, and I kind of got on the on the Wallace kick. I was reading her wonderful essay about him called "Difficult Gifts," and came across this line. And please, and I'll read it for you. Thank you. This is in reference to David Foster Wallace. His recursive labyrinthian sentences demand second readings, like the boy waiting to dive. Their resistance breaks the rhythm that excludes thinking. Breaks the rhythm that excludes thinking. So there's a broken rhythm. Mm -hmm. In breaking it, you don't need to think. You just absorb that. And so there's something about in the rhythm or out of rhythm, in rhythm, that feels really central. Given that, then there's Mm -hmm. a whole layer of... Toni Morrison. I found this great interview between Toni Morrison and Charlie Rose where she's harping on another interviewer who kind of, you know, when when are you going to stop writing about race? That kind of a question, which, of course, she was just totally insulted by. As well Uh, she should be. Yes. But when you read Toni Morrison, and particularly I think it was Jazz, her book Jazz, where... She made a real point of saying, I'm not going to say these are black people or white people. I'm just, these are the people. Right. And it's like, it's not her job to demonstrate the expectations of the expected reader. Uh, it's right. her, 
her job to tell the story. And so, you know, just that idea of what is expected, what's to be demonstrated rather than what's to be lived and experienced, mm-hmm. which kind of goes back to our other question about like what is happening in dance. Right. We're experiencing it. So. Right. I want to wrap up today just by talking about your perceptions of the Columbus in general, the Columbus art scene and what you see, what we can do better at. When I was first here, I guess it's 30 years ago or more, you know, my, my Columbus art scene was in the dance department. It wasn't even in mm-hmm. Sullivan Hall. It was a little, it was a laundry building in the west side of campus. Okay. And Short North didn't exist except for the artists who happened to live there and before they really had a name. Right. So the art scene in Columbus, I think, has emerged in a really organic way that has nicely been illuminated by Mm -hmm. the civic structure. Yeah. And I appreciate that. It's a little harder for an artist to live in the short north these days. A little bit. Yeah. But... There is another level of, if not benefit, then of exchange right. uh, of our economy that's, that's come up. Columbus, it's so interesting because it was like a, a stop for every rock and roll band who recorded, you know, through the 70s and 80s and 90s. So the music scene has been functioning really well and underground yeah. for decades and I feel like there has been more of a underground visual art, some dance as well. But but now that I feel like there are there's enough support through Greater Columbus Arts Council, Arts High Arts Council, other forms of of like let's kind of hold on to that and hopefully allow it to find voice and space it's rather place, than right. yeah rather than dictating to it. So or yeah. It's always a tricky thing. I mean, yeah. this, this Soho in New York is an example of like what happens. Our society does work quite a bit on the cycling of resources in an economy. Yeah. But that said, I, I feel like someplace like the Wexner has been a beacon for, I'm more taken with the behind the scenes, that kind of the low level, the open open classes, the extended residencies, mm-hmm. how you can see artists who are working and making, not only just producing. So places like the Wexner and other gallery spaces are, are feeding that yeah, really wonderfully. So, you know, it's also something that it's tenuous. We all have to keep a, an eye out for how can we keep this up? Yeah, certainly. Um, but um, I've seen several of my friends up on billboards. <laughs> it's a good campaign. Yeah, it's a great campaign, and we're grateful. So. Yeah, great. Bebe Miller, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tim. Great talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of the Confluence Cast with your friends, family, contacts, enemies, your favorite dancer. If you're interested in sponsoring the Confluence Cast, get in touch with us. We can be reached by email at info at theconfluencecast.com. Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. Our producer is Philip Cogley. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a great week.